Glashay Davis's dad had always been a bit eccentric. And then he had a dream about curing AIDS. He woke us up, you know, and was like, you all need to listen to this. And he's like telling us his dream. Glashay says he was determined to make his vision a reality any way possible. Late nights, weekends, holidays. Once he had that, it was, that was his passion. Developing this cure became his mission, sending him all over the globe, forging alliances with ardent supporters and very questionable characters. So on one morning, just weeks before his 56th birthday, Glashay's dad didn't wake up. She was suspicious. I don't know how it was, like how he passed. Um, I don't believe it was from a heart attack, no. I don't, no. From WHYY's The Pulse and local transmedia, this is Serum. I'm Grant Hill. Learning about Gary Davis's work in Africa, the human trials, the moments of hope and promise that were followed by fear, paranoia, and some kind of mental breakdown. My list of questions about the doctor and his serum kept getting longer and longer, like a line of dominoes waiting to fall. Photographer Doug Henderson didn't know exactly what brought Gary Davis to Africa after the serum seemed to make some headway in the U.S., and he didn't know what, or who, convinced the doctor to flee Ghana in 2005. All I can tell you is is what I witnessed. There were still so many gaps in my knowledge of who Davis was, what really happened to his serum in the U.S., who was treated with it, and if it's really still out there. I felt like I needed to get closer to the doctor through the people who knew him best, his friends, his family, especially his kids. If anyone could fill these gaps, point me in the right direction towards someone who had actually been treated with the serum, it would be them. But I had been really nervous about reaching out. I had no idea how his kids would react to my interest in their dad's work, especially right in the middle of a pandemic with its own canon of conspiracy theories and alternative treatments. Hello? Hey, is this Shay? Yeah, this is Shay. The first person I got in touch with was Gary Davis's daughter, Glache. Uh, I know it's kind of weird, you know, just me contacting you out of nowhere, but um, I really appreciate I you, awkwardly uh, explained exactly how I became uh, so obsessed with her dad and told her about my Lyft driver, Clyde Ashley Sherman. Oh my gosh, yeah. So yeah, I know Clyde. Yeah, he was real close with my dad. Like, yeah, they traveled together and yeah, he was cool. I made this first call to Glache in 2020 just as the first wave of COVID-19 cases crested in Oklahoma. Here, no one's taking it seriously. Like Walmart, on the outside of their door, you know, they say you have to have a mask to come in. And most, like I would say 80% of the people... Lachey works in behavioral health and saw firsthand how the pandemic response and misinformation was affecting Tulsa's most vulnerable residents. And they will sit there and stand there and argue with the Walmart staff about well, it's my right to not wear a mask, and I don't have to wear this mask, and, you know, and it's just like, wow. I wanted to know whether she and her family really thought her dad was on to something with his AIDS treatment, or if some over-eager patients or investors, or the doctor himself, had just jumped the gun, made promises the serum couldn't back up. Our dad 
works really, really hard. And, you know, just... Glashea really and I spoke at more. length, and to my surprise, she wasn't weirded out at all. In fact, she had started to become more curious about her dad, too, about what exactly happened to the serum and to him. She put me in touch with Sean, her half-brother, her dad's younger son from a previous marriage. She thought he might have a few things to say, and he did. When it came to like teaching me a lesson about life or quitting, he tested me constantly. I remember he had me walking around the, the, the coffee table in our living room. I was in preschool reciting my multiplication table from 1 to 12 times 12 and say them shits out loud until I could get everyone right, until I could stop crying and talking for hours. I also asked Glache if she could get me in touch with Sean's brother, the doctor's oldest son, Gary Jr., also a Dartmouth grad like their dad, also a doctor. There's been a lot of falling outs over the years between my brothers um, amongst each other, and our dad's always been the center of the argument. She doubted Gary Jr. wanted to talk. My brother, like, I guess he, like, really blamed my dad, like, you know, I just wish he'd be normal, be a normal doctor and not do all this and just give this up. I don't know why he just want to keep chasing this thing, like... You know, and so him and my dad, you know, Junior and my dad got into it. It It's like really bad. But she said I should definitely come to Tulsa, get a sense of the city that formed Gary Davis, meet the rest of the family, and especially her cousin Sharonda, who's a bit older than Glache, and had worked closely with the doctor. Plus, I knew there was a chance if someone really gave Rocky Thomas more serum after her daughter Precious got sick, they might just be in Oklahoma. I also knew there was a chance I might meet a patient who had been treated with the serum there. And I still talk to some of them patients to this day. I on my Facebook. They still my friends. Sean said he would reach out to at least one person on my behalf, but he couldn't make any promises. He's in Oklahoma. He's not taking regular meds for years, but he took the serum and he's fine. And he's still kicking. He's a cowboy. I definitely wanted to meet this cowboy, whoever he was, and the doctor's family. But with the pandemic raging, it took a long while to arrange this trip. I'm gonna throw up if we don't eat soon. Do you want me to stop somewhere? There's nothing here. Finally, in the summer of 2021, I took a chance and drove to Tulsa. So we're gonna... Let's read We're gonna have a dramatic reading. We're gonna have a dramatic reading. The Alfalfa County Communication Logs. Oh God, his love her. That's Mary, my girlfriend. She went along with me, helped keep things light, keep my mind off my conversations with Doug Henderson and Bishop Carlton Pearson, all the unknowns we could be driving right into. Are you sure we just go down this road? Yeah. That's on our left. Yeah, for some reason this isn't working. There we go. After days on the road, Our first stop was to meet Glache's cousin, Sharonda Denard, at an Applebee's in Tulsa. Sharonda pulls up to the parking lot in a compact convertible with a license plate that says fancy. Hi, Sharonda. It's so great to finally meet you. (laughs) Oh my God, I'm so good. I'm so good. good. How are you? I'm good. Sharonda's in her 50s now. Her mother died when she was just a girl. So her uncle, Gary Davis, took her in and gave her a job, too, 
in his small family practice in Tulsa. Let me, uh, tell Okay. Sharonda has invited her uncle's best friend. His name is Curtis West. Everyone here calls Curtis baby. Hey, baby. How you doing? We grab a table. Sharonda's a regular. She gets the staff to mute the music near us so it won't be too loud. And they're all eager to talk about the doctor. Curtis has even brought a manila folder stuffed with photos. This is my cousin, Dr. Davis. He calls Gary Davis his cousin, even though they were not actually related. <laughs> so that's personal. That's him. He's also brought a bunch of papers from back when he was helping Davis try to get his serum off the ground. Curtis had no medical experience. He was a gym teacher who wanted to help his best friend make his dream come to life. And then later on, we had a patient named Bob Cowan. Sharonda sits next to Curtis, nodding along, chiming in to give more detail. Once they've been tested, they come to him with their lab work. They've been tested. Two hours pass, and we're still talking. Well, mostly Curtis's, about how great his friend was, how federal health officials never gave him a fair shot, and how he misses him. Yeah, he was on that viral road. (laughs) He cut him off in a minute. Not cutting y'all, but just hearing y'all talk about everything. That's Karen, Curtis's wife. She met Curtis after Gary Davis died, but she's heard all of this before. What it sounded like to me is that they looked at him as a man of color as being a threat because of his knowledge that he knew. And that's what it all really kind of like boiled down to, Mm -hmm. because if it had to be anyone else, they would have listened. But they didn't want to listen because of who he was. We wrap up and head back out to the hot, windy parking lot. Our conversation was fascinating, heartfelt. But I don't feel like I've learned anything brand new. No revelations. To be honest, though, I'm not sure what exactly I expected to learn. But everything that we did in honor of God, did you ever doubt it yourself? Like, was there a moment? Never, never, never. Not one time. To Curtis, the serum was divinely inspired, part of God's plan, basically fate. And me getting in that cabin Philly, meeting Sherman, discovering the doctor's story, coming to Tulsa, Curtis thinks all that is fate too. He's still speaking, but my mind is wandering. What if he's right? Is this fate? Maybe I will find something here that helps me make sense of it all. We have a, I have a nephew just got full of bone eggs right now. But he's still around. He struggles sometimes. But if we had some more medicine, because I thought about Precious, too, because we often wonder, how is she doing? Then we heard she graduated. Then Sharonda offers to take Mary and me on a Gary Davis-inspired tour of Tulsa to show us where the doctor lived, where he worked, where he died. All right, we'll follow you then. We say our goodbyes to Curtis and get into the car to follow Sharonda. We're going to have to pay attention to where I'm losing Sharonda. Yeah, I got her. Um, I got her. We're on like a high-speed chase. (laughs) Soon, Sharonda hops in our car, the only way I could keep up with her. And eventually, we approach a very important stop on our tour, the site of the family's old house on East Mohawk Boulevard. So all it is, this is where our house was. Right here? Yeah. I was excited to maybe go in the house, look around, check for clues about the serum that Gary Davis may have left behind. But as we approach, Sharonda's shoulders sink, and she points to a mound of dry dirt 
surrounded by a wrought iron fence. The old house is gone, torn down. Something she discovered just a couple weeks ago. Really. I said, what the hell? I got my eyes down. I said, what happened? My shoulders sink too. This doesn't feel like fate. But I try to imagine how it all looked back when it did. We were at home at 1715 East Mohawk Boulevard, Tulsa, Oklahoma, in a blue house. That night in December 1992, when everything changed forever. And it was like maybe 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning, on a regular random day. The night Gary Davis woke everybody up with big, strange news. And his master bedroom was adjacent for me and my brothers. And we both got woke up in the middle of the night with him talking about this dream. This is Sean Davis again the younger of two sons from the doctor's first marriage. Then we'll talk to y'all in the, in the study. Let's go to the study right now. We're like, what is going on? Glache was there too. He woke us up, you know, and was like, listen, like, y'all need to listen to this. And he's like telling us his dream of him injecting the antibodies, you know, into the goat. The goat makes antibodies for, you know, HIV and AIDS. It was almost like it was Christmas, but it was no Santa Claus. It was this serum. That's how it was. He woke everybody up like he was in It's a Wonderful Life, talking about he thought he thought he solved a problem to cure HIV. And we were all like, what are you talking about? He was like, I think this goat might actually have something in it that can help fight the virus. We were like, why are you saying that now? He's like, I had this dream. And then like the whole night, he didn't sleep. He was up just constantly like writing all this stuff down. And then the next day, you know, he's telling us, I got to get this in motion. Like, I got to do this. Like, I know that this is something that I have to do. And AIDS and HIV was a passion of his because he signed a lot of death certificates of his patients that died from it. And unfortunately, a lot of them were in the black community here in North Tulsa. And so it lit a fire in him. He wasn't the same after that. So this is what I'm thinking about as I look at the mound of dirt that was Gary Davis's house. My hopes of finding some sort of time capsule or clue left by the doctor no dashed. Yeah. You wouldn't even know that we lived here unless you look at pictures. Yeah. My house is gone. <laughs> wow. I mean, That's I'm horrible. They, wow. Yeah, they just yeah. It and... Real answers to big questions are rarely found all at once or in one place. I was learning that the hard way. But according to Sharonda, here, in the historically black neighborhood of Greenwood in North Tulsa, I was much closer to finding the truth and really understanding her uncle. No, they're doing an article on my uncle, Dr. Gary Davis. Oh, Gary Davis was a classmate of mine at Booker T. Yeah, that's my uncle. So they're in town from Philly. Charles Johnson. Here, people think of Gary Davis as a hero. We were just talking about Dr. Davis because somebody had some pictures from down here. Yeah, so we're getting yeah. ready. I'm trying to see if I can get up the stairs, see if I can get up there. We walk up to the hospital where he worked early on in his career, delivering babies for impoverished, at-risk mothers, taking the cases other doctors considered too risky. Mind you, I ain't been here since 16. Oh, really? Sharonda shows me the brick leading up to the entrance of the hospital, engraved with the doctor's name. I just have a trash can up here, right here. Soon, we arrive at the place where Gary Davis cemented his legacy, the old family practice. This is where the doctor saw his patients year after year, 
where his serum became the stuff of legend. So at the top to the left was our office. It's a three-story building in the middle of a strip of storefronts on Greenwood Avenue, the heart of what was once known as Black Wall Street. Sharonda takes us to the back of the building, where a long hallway connects all the stores on the block. Let's see. Let's go back here. Let's go back here since you guys are already here in town. Let's show you. There's the eagle. Yeah, get the eagle. What Sharonda wants to show us was basically a private museum documenting what happened here over a century ago when a white mob destroyed this thriving black community. It's a hidden memorial, not open to the public. So you're talking about the 1921 race riots um, and when they tore down Greenwood, burned it down, Greenwood rebuilt, and then internal revenue. Homemade posters, timelines, maps, and laminated photos of local and national black heroes covered the walls. Colorful dresses and hats displayed on mannequins next to a metal sign that used to hang over segregated water fountains. The lettering had just begun to fade. And so this is just a lot of um, collectible history that people have had stored in their homes that maybe their ancestors left to them or, you know, or their mom or whatever, you know, left to them. So they all brought it. It dates from way, way, way back when. Um, it, we also have a culture center. In the culture center, our family's in there because um, their family home got burned up in a race riot. The mob decimated whole city blocks, looted businesses, and left 10,000 people homeless. The place where we are standing now, it had all been reduced to rubble. It was the largest race riot in American history, something officials tried to hide. They swept it under the bridge. They told everybody, don't talk about it, like it didn't happen. And so then you had a lot of people running around here. Initially, the state claimed only 36 people had died during the riots, including 12 white people. Historians now say the real number of black Tulsans murdered over those two days could be over 300. In 2018, the city had committed to reinvestigating the riots. As Sharonda showed us around, researchers were still lifting remains from unmarked graves, where it was long rumored victims of the killings were buried. Just like the graves, one guy told them where the bodies were buried, because his dad told him when he was a little boy. And that's how they know. That's how we know. Ain't that crazy? Those two dark days of violence in Tulsa in 1921 destroyed more than just lives, families, and property. It destroyed everything Black Wall Street symbolized. The bright promise that peace and prosperity were possible for all Americans. That things were changing. But the violence eclipsed that promise. Among the many repercussions of the massacre, was the significant enduring decline in the number of patents filed by black inventors throughout the entire country. Sharonda wants me to see this, to understand this history, because it shaped Gary Davis in so many ways. He was born just 30 years after this massacre, and his early life in North Tulsa wasn't easy. The doctor's father was a day laborer who loved math. He went to vocational school, but jobs were scarce for a black man then. He died young. The doctor often described his mom as a hustler, someone who turned things over, bought and sold bric-a-brac, at one point weed, to fill the gaps, 
put food on the table. Life was unstable for Gary Davis growing up. The doctor's daughter, Glache, has heard stories of her dad getting out of school, his brother waiting for him outside, with two familiar words. Mama moved. This happened multiple times, Glache said, sometimes due to money problems, sometimes racial tensions. But Davis persevered. He graduated from Booker T. Washington High School, then double majored in chemistry and mathematics at Northeastern State University, an hour away from his home. He landed an internship at Dow Chemical, where a mentor suggested he apply to Dartmouth Medical School. So he did, and he got in. Still, that long shadow of racism followed. His daughter, Glache, told me about an example, something that happened in medical school. There were some times that people would hand him, like, or tell him, like, hey, there's an issue in the bathroom. You need to go handle that. And he's like, what? I'm a student. They're like, oh, you're a student here? He's like, yeah, I'm not a janitor. What are you talking about? He said he felt really out of place when he pulled up and there's kids like driving Bentleys and Mercedes and like really nice cars. And he's like, I had a baby, a wife and another baby on the way. And he's like a car that you had to add water to, to get from point A to point B. But no matter where he traveled, no matter how he got there, Gary Davis always found a way back to point A, back to Tulsa. His resume says that after finishing medical school in 1977, Davis became a field medical services officer in the U.S. Marine Corps in North Carolina, did his residency at the Naval Regional Medical Center in Maryland. After that, he was a senior medical officer at the Naval Nuclear Weapons Station in Goose Creek, South Carolina. His service kept him on the East Coast until the mid-80s, when he eventually returned to Greenwood to be a physician there, to serve his community. And now, Sharonda wants to show me the place where he did just that. But I was trying to get upstairs. I want to show him where our office was. Wow. Um, I don't have the all The first floor of the building is a barbershop. The old office is on the second and third floor. Sharonda walks in, a woman on a mission. So I wanted to show him where our office was. Um, we settle into the welcome air-conditioned cool of the barbershop. Because um, when, when Rocky Nev came down, uh, precious the little girl that her mom stole the serum, she stole it out of her refrigerator. Customers start asking us questions. I mean, I am holding a giant microphone. Uh, uncle had a business here on Greenwood? Dr. Davis. Awesome. Dr. Davis? Gary Davis. That's the... Uh, he was like a medical doctor. Yeah. Oh, I heard. Yeah, there. over here. I heard about him. Yeah. So they are. He in had a cure for uh, AIDS. AIDS. Yeah. So they're in town and they are. I'm eager to get upstairs, closer yet to the place where Gary Davis had done so much work on the serum, where Rocky Thomas told me she had gotten the vials to treat Precious. And honestly, I hadn't completely given up on finding that secret time capsule full of answers, something to tell me if this serum actually worked, or that it was all a sham. I didn't believe it at first myself. I'm not going to lie. I was a skeptic like anybody else. Why you did it, how you did it, why it worked for you, why it worked for nobody else, how you come up with it. At first, the doctor's younger son, Sean, wasn't buying it. He was already spending a good portion of his free time as a teenager working at his dad's office. He made me work there. He said, if I'm, if I'm going to get money, I'm going to earn it. He don't give me no allowance just to make sure I got money in my pocket and I don't do nothing to earn that money. So he had me filing test results 
in patience charts when I, when I was probably like in the eighth grade. Whatever his dad's dream was all about, Sean wanted no part of it. Even though he was my dad, I was a skeptic. I was like, bullshit, dad, come on now. You can do some shit that Fauci couldn't do, FDA couldn't do, NIH couldn't do, CDC couldn't do. You did it. I was like, bullshit. Other people around Gary Davis felt more inspired. Neighbors, other doctors, lawyers, friends, they wanted to help. People like Davis's best friend, Curtis Baby West. I'm saying to you, Grant, we diligently worked on that project. He told me that in the early days, he managed the doctor's correspondence with the FDA alongside a local judge. They formed a committee. And with these guys being legal people, they made sure everything before we sent out, we proofread it, read it over and over to make sure it's precise. Another supporter and volunteer, Kenneth Bolton, heard about the serum from his brother-in-law, a doctor in Tulsa, a friend of Davis. Ken had connections in Washington, and he wanted to help on the political side of things. My objective was to let him do the science, and I would try to do a business, because that's what I do. Ken leveraged his knowledge and network from his decades working at federal agencies to lobby for the serum. There was so much action during those days about trying to promote it. Ken told me Davis was a polymath, skilled at almost everything he tried, excluding business stuff. The doctor was creative and had little patience for bureaucracy. He was a thinker. Ken said Davis was a founding member of the Gap Band, a famous R&B group from Tulsa whose early hits were partially written by Davis, according to Ken. He's like you would expect a scientist to be, have a curious mind. In the beginning, it was people like Ken and Curtis, friends and family who were excited about the cause and devoted to Davis, who the doctor leaned on most as he got into the regulatory process with the serum. They weren't exactly experts in drug development, but Davis trusted them, and that was worth a lot. Eventually, they raised funds for a modest lab in Poto, Oklahoma, a small town two and a half hours away from Tulsa. Well, in his lab, he was physically making the medicine. So, you know, we had, he had a few barnyard goats. The doctor's daughter, Glache, was still a child then. And almost every weekend, Glache and her dad made that long drive to Poto. Almost every weekend, Glache watched her dad work. He had two patients that had AIDS, HIV, that said, yes, I consent for you to give me, you know, I'll give you my blood to be able to inject that into the goat and this and that. So my dad would take the blood from them, inject it into the goat, and then the goat made antibodies within a day. Her dad would draw blood from the goat, watching it fight off the virus, produce antibodies. After a certain period of time, like the goat's antibody completely eradicated the AIDS virus where you couldn't even find it anymore. So at its peak, that's the part that he would take and turn it into a serum. And that's the, the serum that everybody, that he did clinical trials on in Africa and stuff like that. that that's the stuff that does its job. It was fascinating to witness, up to a point. It's hard enough to get a kid to go to piano lessons, let alone sit still in a lab all day. Man, like, we're going down to a lab in the middle of nowhere doing this on the weekend, you know? And I'm like, I want to be with my friends a little bit. And my dad was like, no, you got to go with me. Like, where else are you going to go? 
you know, you go with me, and that's just the way it is. So I started to try to find things that I really liked about going. So then I looked forward to it and started to figure out things that I really liked and realized it was it was a cool moment. Not very many people got to, to, to do that. Of the many things Glache said her father had taught her, one of the most important was chemistry. She said that was her dad's true passion, fostered during his time at Dow Chemical. It was this foundation that fueled the science behind Davis's serum. She said for her dad, this was what it was all about, a scientific quest to help people, not about making money. That never came in his mind, his thought process, you know, because people would say, you know, you can make a lot of money from this. And my dad was like, I want to do this even if it's free, even if I could help somebody, you know, to save somebody's life. Like, that's what I want. Glache believed in her dad. She was by his side while he was refining the process, trying to get it right. And in time, her brother Sean started to come around too. I said bullshit for about two, three years. I don't believe it. Then I saw the results from Dr. Jolly with the in vitro stuff. And it said what it said. And I was like, okay, maybe, maybe. Those results, the ones that persuaded Sean that maybe his dad was onto something, they came from this woman. Hello? That's Dr. Pauline Jolly. She's an epidemiologist and professor emeritus at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. A year before Davis had his dream, Pauline started working with researchers at Tuskegee University's College of Veterinary Medicine, studying how animal antibodies interact with HIV. And her team was especially interested in goats. Uh, We were thinking that maybe the goats would process the virus in a different way from human beings and produce strong neutralizing antibodies against HIV. And then that could be used in humans, either prophylactically, or the results could lead to development of a HIV vaccine. After his dream, Davis immersed himself in HIV research. And through some connections, he eventually approached Pauline's team for help in developing his serum. He wanted to collaborate. The hope was to get funding from the NIH. Pauline had worked on research with the agency before. By the spring of 1995, with the help of the resources contributed by Tuskegee, Davis said he had created a serum from the blood of a goat that had been infected with HIV. After running through the process a few more times, he sent a batch of this serum to Pauline to be tested. By the summer, the results were in. The results did look like the serum, you know, could hold the virus from infecting itself. Pauline said that in a lab, the serum appeared to stop HIV from infecting a human cell. Back then, she also told the Washington Post that the serum could eliminate already infected cells too. Still, these were just lab tests, human cells in test tubes and petri dishes, not real, live, complex human beings. It was a promising result, yes, but far off from a sure thing. However, the results confirmed Davis's hypothesis that this could work. So, lab results in hand, Davis applied to conduct a phase one clinical trial with the FDA in February 1997. By then, the HIV-related mortality rate in the U.S. had just begun to decline thanks to the rollout of new experimental antiretroviral drugs. But it wasn't nearly quick enough. The goal for Davis's first trial was pretty basic. Prove to the government that the product was safe for human use, monitor side effects and adverse reactions, 
Only then can you move on to phase two and three trials to show your product really benefits patients, improves their condition. All pharmaceutical companies have to do this, submit an investigational new drug application that lays out how their phase one trial with a new product will work. Once received, the FDA has 30 days to say, wait, hold up, pause. We got more questions for you before you go through with this and put patients' lives on the line. That's called being put on clinical hold. It's very common. And that's what happened to Davis on April 9, 1997. His application was put on clinical hold. Glache told me she was there that day. It was about an hour before he was fixing to start. Um, a man came in in a suit and two, um, I mean, they, to me, they look like Secret Service type guys. They came in behind him and they said, this is not a go. Like, this can, you know, unplug, disconnect. This is not, we're not going to go forward with this. And so my dad and him went into my dad's office. They talked and then... When he left, we were all like, my dad and his staff were all just like standing there like, what happened? And so I go into his office and he's crying. And we're like, you know, what's wrong? He said that they're not going to let me do this. Like, I know this is what I'm supposed to do and they won't let me do this. For what it's worth, Davis told the Washington Post that he got the news about the clinical hold by phone the day before the trial was supposed to begin, not through a personal visit. But others I interviewed also told me stories about in-person visits from the FDA at Davis's office, visits that were not always pleasant. Still, the doctor was sure about his serum, and he was passionate about helping people who didn't have access to the newest approved treatments. So he started making noise about Pauline Jolly's lab results, stirring up a bit of a publicity campaign for the serum with the help of his patient, Bobby Cowan. According to Dr. Davis, you have a potential cure for AIDS. This is no different than you taking venom from a snake, injecting it into a horse. The horse makes antibodies, and you take the antibodies. Ken Bolton, who was helping Davis at the time, told me at first, federal health officials, experts in HIV, had been into the idea behind the goat serum. Ken was able to use his political connections to get Davis meetings in Washington. By that time, we had gone to NIH, and we were good friends with um, Dr. Fauci. And uh, uh, Dr. Fauci thought uh, it was worth uh, spending some time. And uh, we wanted NIH to be a partner with this in developing it. And he generally agreed with that. But Davis's best friend, Curtis West, and plenty others told me for whatever reason, that goodwill between Dr. Davis, Dr. Fauci, and the NIH did not last long. But when I see Dr. Fauci, man, I have to really, it's hard for me. In the press, Anthony Fauci said the whole idea behind the serum was bunk. Not only is there not any basis for it to work, but there is evidence to the contrary that it won't work because this type of approach has been tried before in an even more sophisticated way. So you're saying that medical science has looked at this. The people on the cutting edge of AIDS research right now basically look at this and say, been there, done that, it doesn't work. That's correct. But even this didn't stop Davis. He dug his heels in. So a lot of people are going to say, hey, how can all these bright scientists in Washington, D.C. and around the world have been working on this problem? How could they overlook something that seems so simple? They didn't ask me. The doctor was cocky 
and determined, maybe even reckless. He didn't wait for permission. He began quietly treating people with his unapproved serum in Tulsa. And this is when his son, Sean, the skeptic. This is a test tube. Maybe it, it don't work in a person. This works in the laboratory in a test tube. Became a believer. My proof was precious. What changed his mind was Precious Thomas. My proof was precious. And I saw this little girl sick. And I saw this little girl after she got that shot. I saw this little girl for four years because she was in D.C. when I was in D.C. When I went to Howard, she was living there with Rocky. I saw this little girl playing. I saw this little girl sick. I saw her blood work. That girl's viral load went to zero. Her CD4 cell count went to normal, and she has kids now that aren't HIV positive. So how'd that happen? And she didn't take the protocol from Fauci and NIH. Soon, the media got a hold of Precious's story, how her adoptive mother, Rocky, eschewed the NIH's protocol in favor of Dr. Davis's serum, how the little girl's viral count, monitored by the NIH, had dropped to undetectable. Soon, politicians got involved, vowed to help in D.C. Federal health officials promised to give the serum a second look. But Glache and Sean said they were just that, promises. Despite Precious's recovery, Nothing ever came of the serum that purportedly saved her, for reasons unknown. But Davis didn't stop. His quest for the cure continued. Even after being put on clinical hold, he traveled to other countries like Ivory Coast and Ghana to try to get the project going there. He went to so many different places. Even his own family had trouble remembering where he was when. Still, that whole time, he didn't give up on starting his clinical trial in the States. Dr. Davis later went to NIH, and NIH asked me to, to send them the results. Pauline Jolly sent her promising test results to the NIH upon Davis's request. She still has all the paperwork from that time. I have a... A memorandum, what they call it, here. She rifled through it during our conversation. They were saying that they were going to try to duplicate what we had done. In other words, infect goes with, with the virus. And then they had promised to carry out studies designed to look to characterize the serum. The NIH agreed to try to replicate the serum, run some tests, and see if it lived up to the hype. That was in 2004. So I sent that to them, and I don't know, you know, what became of that promise, you know, mm. how far they got and, and, and whether they presented Dr. Davis with any results from, from what they promised to do. That was the last time Pauline had heard about the status of the serum in the U.S. More promises. Pauline Jolly wasn't sure why Gary Davis never secured clinical trials with the FDA for his serum. I told her about the speculation I had seen online and heard in interviews that some, maybe even Davis himself, believed that Big Pharma didn't want this treatment out there at the time, that there was too much money at stake with the antiretrovirals already in the pipeline. No, I can't. I, I, I can't believe that. I can't believe that. <laughs> you know... If, if you find out what actually happened after the NIH collected the sample and promised to do the, the 
testing for Dr. Davis. That would maybe explain what happened at the NIH. I kept searching for answers to find out what happened to the serum at NIH. What made Anthony Fauci go from his passionate certainty that Gary Davis's approach would not work in 1997? But there is evidence to the contrary. To his response in that C-SPAN clip from 2005. And although conceptually it's a reasonable idea to use antiseria, it, it does Where he not called it a right. reasonable idea. I was being told Anthony Fauci was unavailable to answer my questions. And the doctor at NIH who oversaw Precious's protocol declined to speak with me too. Then one day, I got a message on Twitter from an account I didn't recognize called Enigma 69 Yeah, I know. Hello, I noticed you performed a FOIA request for BB7075 and Dr. Davis, the user wrote. I'm just curious. Then a phone number and a name. Turns out, M Enigma 69 used to work for the doctor and still keeps tabs on the serum. I told this person about my project. They were really concerned about privacy and didn't want to be recorded for the podcast. But they pointed me in a direction. See, this tipster believed that not long after Davis's trial was put on clinical hold, a biopharmaceutical company may have piggybacked off the doctor's research. And this company did get support from federal health officials. And wouldn't you know it, M Enigma 69 was onto something. Coming up on Serum. I am quite open to pushing envelopes. I, I like out-of-box thinking. When the name Harvard is attached to an idea, it seems to get more respect. I mean, for their investors, it was our drug is being tested at Harvard. And indeed it was. That's next on Serum. This is Serum. I'm Grant Hill. So I got this tip from a weirdly named Twitter account saying, hey, if you're looking into Gary Davis, you should check out this clinical trial conducted by a biopharmaceutical company. They did some research that was very similar to Gary Davis's work. And to my surprise, I found the trial and the researcher who headed it. My name is uh, Bruce DeZuby. Uh, at the time of the trial... Uh, I was an associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a staff physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Four years after Dr. Davis was put on clinical hold, Bruce was starting a brand new phase one clinical trial in Boston, Massachusetts, just one of the hundreds he led as a researcher on experimental therapeutics for cancer and HIV there. It was a crisp September morning in 2001. I'll never forget, I was examining this patient, and so he was facing the TV when I was examining him, and I was looking at his body, and he said, like, holy shit, I'll never forget this. And I said, like, what did I do? And he said, the plane flew into a tower. Did you see it? Then another hit. And the whole, like, unit came to a screeching halt. Every physician and every nurse and everybody. So that's where I was. 
at the time that the towers came down. I was administering polyclonal goat antibody to HIV patients. Polyclonal goat antibodies, goat serum. I am quite open to pushing envelopes. I I like out-of-box thinking. By that time, Bruce had developed a bit of a reputation among medical researchers, a good one. He was the go-to guy for trialing unconventional ideas, unconventional treatments. He wasn't afraid to fail or get laughed at, which he never was. Uh, I had no trouble getting companies to come to me, and they wanted the Harvard signature. I mean, for their investors, it was our drug is being tested at Harvard. And indeed it was. So when a company from New Zealand called Virionics approached Bruce to write up an investigational new drug application for their new product, a serum made from the blood of a goat infected with HIV, he jumped at the chance. I basically wrote the trial for them. Uh, They're a company without an MD. I wrote the trial with them with a team. I had a team. And it was, it was trialed on a floor that was paid for by uh, taxpayer dollar money. That's right. By 2001, not only had FDA officials approved a phase one clinical trial for this company's goat serum, but the NIH was helping fund it. I sent over some information about Gary Davis to Bruce before we spoke. He recognized the Washington Post article about it. Once I read it, I said, oh, I read this before. He remembered the article had also been sent to him by Virionics. So you think that Virionics did know about Gary Davis's work? I would say with 99% certainty. Both Gary Davis and the founder of Virionics filed patents trying to protect their serums. Gary Davis filed first. Bruce didn't know exactly how similar the two serums were in composition. He said that would take lab tests to determine. But the theory was basically the same. The theory was the same, that you infect HIV into goats and you develop a polyclonal response and that you would do it. But, like, you know, how can I, how can I compare it? Did the NIH or anybody from federal health agencies ever express any concern as to the scientific kind of um, merits of what you were doing? Did anybody say flat out to you, there's evidence to the contrary that this won't work? No one has, no one had ever said that. So what happened in the trial? It went very smoothly. You can read the article, it went very smoothly in a handful of patients that lowered their HIV load. It, it, it worked. In 2003, the study was published in the Journal of Infectious Diseases. Overall, it was a success, though Bruce cautioned that more testing was needed with dosing and various other factors to determine its true potential. This early trial by no means proved Virionics' serum was a cure or that it would continue to work over time, but it was well-tolerated and effective for some. He compared it to another drug he worked on and a comment he received from someone working at NIH. They put it like this. Dezubi, at the end of the day, you hit a solid signal. And I would say the goat serum 
for what it was being developed as a treatment for HIV, I had a solid signal. So what happened to virionics and its serum? We'll get to that in a later episode. But I asked Bruce, knowing what he knew about the serum, about the so-called goat doctor, was Davis a quack, a crank? Oh, my God, for sure not. For sure not. Like, for sure not. How can you call somebody crank when you got a, a, you know, I was just one typical HIV provider. I had a 20-year-old tie on me every week. Like, how can you call somebody crank? Like, it's got to be tested. You know, there's a lot of crazy cancer things. And uh, I don't approve of these crazy cancer treatments, but I do approve of them being tested in a trial that's FDA approved. I don't, I, I for sure didn't uh, think he's a, a quack doctor. Gary Davis never got to test his serum in an FDA approved trial. Could it have been more than a single? Could it have been a home run or just a strikeout? Who knows? A lot of people around Davis felt like he was being stifled by powerful unseen forces for nefarious reasons. Sean, the doctor's son, had a different perspective. He said the people his dad trusted in Tulsa to help get the process going just weren't up to the task. Securing a clinical trial with the FDA isn't like going through a home inspection. See, the, the problem my dad kept running into, and he ran into it his whole life, everybody can't do what they fucking say they can do. They just can't do it. They might have every positive, wannabe, helpful intention in the world. But if they don't know how to physically, logistically get that shit done, they can't tell you they can do it. They can't do it. Someone close to Davis in Tulsa shared over 100 pages of the doctor's old documents with me, including his responses to questions from the FDA after his trial was put on clinical hold. Reading them, it became clear this was a local operation, not one run by pharma companies or a big-name university with high-powered lawyers. Pages were numbered in pen, or not at all, and the doctor's responses, folksy, personal, and dripping with contempt. He planned to randomize patients using red and green marbles, like actual marbles. He explained why humans can process milk produced by other animals. But most of all, he expressed frustration with investigators and their questions. I think this quote sums it up best. Quote, It is, in my opinion, incredible that the concerns proposed by the FDA concerning this simple, uncomplicated, basic clinical trial has stirred up so much concern when we are faced with the devastation of life, quality of life, destruction of families and cities and even countries, that simple, simplistic questions that are common knowledge to most medical students studying basic science are brought up in such a manner. The clinical trial application process is complicated, time-consuming, and multifaceted. And for good reason. It's a process that's meant to protect participants in clinical trials and potentially millions of future patients. To stop companies from using junk science to sell you and your doctor bad drugs. Drugs that might do more harm than good. That's the theory, at least. And this process requires more than just a thorough researcher and an experienced lawyer. You need armies of them and a war chest to match. Those high drug prices, this is what drug companies say justifies them. Sean told me his dad didn't have this kind of army at his command, and he didn't want it, which made Sean mad. And if you see they can't do it, then why are you still dealing with them? He'll say, well, I'm because of loyalty. Oh, they helped me do this, they helped me do that. But they can't take you to the goal line. If you can't score, why are you playing the game? 
That, that was my thing. And I kept saying, if you can't score with these people on this team, why are you playing this game with them? They can't get you to where you want to go. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the information. They don't have the know-how. I mean, damn sure ain't got the money. But this was falling on deaf ears. He wouldn't listen to me. You need somebody like Pfizer being your partner. Johnson Johnson being your partner. These little venture capital random lawyer people don't know how to take a drug to market. They don't. To Sean, it made sense why his dad couldn't do it with his small team of friends and family in Tulsa. What didn't make sense was why, during the height of the AIDS epidemic, and after seeing Pauline Jolly's test results, witnessing Precious Thomas's recovery, instead of deriding the doctor, why didn't federal health officials at least give him a shot? Even Fauci, which I talked to Fauci on the phone too, and he's like, no, it can't work, it won't work. He said, why you just don't prove me wrong? Just prove me wrong. You, you already know a patient that you had who didn't take your protocol went from viral load of 100-something thousand parts per mil to zero. And their T-cell count went above normal with no medication from you. So if you already know a patient's gone from two extremes like that, why you don't at least try what I'm saying in vitro and tell me I'm dumb and this shit don't work? Just prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. He wouldn't do it. But... Sean acknowledged that there were people who wanted to see the serum fail, who were trying to intimidate his dad, threatening him. I heard some calls when we were together and somebody would say some bullshit like, I'm going to kill you and your family, or you're a gay lover, and he, they hang the phone up, and he'd be like, there goes another one. And I was like, yeah, I said, really? He's like, yep. I said, what did he say? And he would tell me whatever they said. Well, I'm going to kill you, calling them nigger. I'm going to kill you. You think you're a smart nigger? He, all kinds, I don't know who these people were. He didn't either. He didn't either. So I was like, are they who? Nobody really knew. Is it bullshit? Is it real shit? Are these just this jokers? Are they serious? Nobody knew. Other people I talked to from Tulsa had heard similar things and worse. When I talked to Glache, I finally decided to ask her about her father's death. Um, I've heard your dad died from a heart attack, but I've also talked to some people who think otherwise. Um, where do you fall on that? Um, I say the otherwise also. Um, I don't know how it was, like how he passed. Um, I don't believe it was from a heart attack, no. I don't, no. His whole death never felt right for me. Like I just never accepted that he passed away from a heart attack. And especially when I looked at his death certificate for the first time a year ago, it said contributing cause of death was malnutrition. And that's a joke because the dude ate all the time. So, and he was not malnutrition. So I don't know how you can come up with that as a cause of death. So to me, that really just kind of, I'm like, okay, so... Obviously, you're not convinced it was a heart attack because you put malnutrition on a contributing cause of death. So that just made it in my head even more that I don't believe he died from a heart attack, no. And a lot of people that are close to us don't either. Had she ever thought about trying to find out what happened? Yeah, I really have. And it's more or less a fear because I'm like, Who's going to stand beside me when I go through this? Because I'm like the only sibling here in Tulsa. And then the fact that they didn't even perform an actual autopsy is what is weird to me also because 
the funeral director that did all of my dad's stuff said he didn't he wasn't a full post uh, which is you know an autopsy and i was like he wasn't he said no i was like well how do they why are they coming with a heart attack then if they don't even know like he's 55 so the heart attack thing was never confirmed of if he really died from a heart attack because he was never autopsied And now, here I was in Tulsa, just steps away from Gary Davis's inner sanctum, his office, but unable to get in. The barbershop offered a nice reprieve from the heat, but my sights were set on getting upstairs. Sharonda keeps making calls to find a key and chatting with customers. He's going to see what it looks like up there. I just want to see if maybe we can see the stairs. Or you know he had a secret office, too. Yeah, that one upstairs. No, that one oh, upstairs. I know that one. One woman asks if we know about Davis's secret office, the one located on Apache Street in another part of town. I didn't know what that was. I used to yeah. see people go back there, and then finally they told me what yeah. it was. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, in a secret I live. Yeah. He For had what? to have one. That's what I learned. Yeah, we he had to have one because his life was threatened. I didn't know about that. Off to the side in the barbershop, Sharonda looks really annoyed. In a whisper, she explains that the office was not a secret. It was just a place for her uncle to have private meetings. That's all. No mystery. No question marks. And then finally, we get word that somebody with a key is on their way. They arrive moments later. They're working with her and Yeah. What'd it look like? All right, let's go yeah, see good. it. All right. We unlock the door and slowly walk up the flight of stairs to Davis's old office. Sharonda leads the way. For believers in the serum, this old office was holy ground, the site of a miracle or a stunning scientific achievement. Take your pick. But as I climb the stairs, my mind cannot stop buzzing from that brief interaction inside the barbershop. The secret office, the specter of threats and violence, it's clearly upsetting to Sharonda. The fact that people who didn't really know her uncle keep bringing it up. I know he went places. I know he did things. I understand that. But don't sit here and tell me about my uncle. He didn't die in vain. That man needs to be up on a pedestal where he belongs. If you want to keep him down here with your little low lives, leave him down there. But I'm telling you about me and mine. You might have some truth in something that happened at some, but don't tell me about his death. Don't tell I was there. Fool. I was there. Next time on Serum, how did Gary Davis die? 
at the end, I just it, it broke my heart to see him in that condition where he was, I, I think, pretty much homeless. Who was threatening him? I'm calling it for what it is. Nobody else wants to say it out loud. And what other secrets of the serum were hidden here in Oklahoma? I commit to it and say it's weird. Serum is a production of WHYY's The Pulse and Local Transmedia. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Serum Podcast. Our engineer is Charlie Kyer. Serum is produced and edited by Mike and Scott, with additional editing from Liz Tung and Jad Slayman, and support from Lindsay Lazarski and Nicole Curry. It's written and reported by me, Grant Hill. Serum was made possible in part with support from the Commonwealth Fund. Original music for this podcast was produced by me and Brandon Tomei. Our artwork was created by Michael Danley, graphic design by Myth Partners in Philadelphia. Special thanks to Mary Purcell, Joe Cashman, and the Hill family for their support.